Welcome to the Degree of Freedom podcast. My name is Jonathan Haber, and today we're going to be joined by Russell Beale, a member of the team at the UK MOOC provider FutureLearn. Russell bears the intriguing title Critical Friend, an organization that anchors a European challenge to the dominant position of US-based MOOC companies. And the entrance of more international players into the MOOC ecosystem brings up a number of important issues, which we'll be getting to later in the podcast. But first, let's hear what a critical friend has to say about FutureLearn. And apologies in advance for the less-than-perfect audio quality for this week's interview, which shouldn't stop you from hanging on every word our guest has to say. Russell Beale, welcome to Degree of Freedom. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. So, Russell, why don't you tell us about your background and the roles you play both at your university and at FutureLearn? Sure. So, I'm an academic at the University of Birmingham. I'm a professor of human-future interaction, and I direct the HCI Center, which is a cross-collaborative venture across the university. And essentially, I'm interested in how people and technology interact with each other and influence each other. My current main research interest is behavior change and how technology can mediate behavior change. So we're trying to, to build some psychological theories into some of the approaches we use to, to get people to behave in ways they would like to but might find difficult. So how they can eat more healthily or exercise more often. My other role is uh, what's beautifully called a critical friend for future learning. And a critical friend is essentially somebody who looks from an overview perspective at all sorts of different parts of the, of the company and the organization, the activities that go on, and tries to make sure that nothing falls down through the gaps, that the bits talk to each other, that particular issues are appropriately escalated and dealt with, and we do look at particular projects to solve particular problems, and, and really to offer some, some challenging executive management of the project and also some of the individuals involved as well to help them really understand what they're doing and why they're doing it and how they could work more effectively and efficiently so that the, uh, that the company progresses as, as well as possible. Okay, and that's what makes you a critical friend? Yeah, I think, I think there are a number of key attributes for, for people to be critical friends. I think the first is that you have to have the ability to, to, to be empathetic with very different parts of the business. So you need to understand commercial pressures, you need to understand research issues, you need to understand creative aspects and tensions. And I think in my sort of research background, I'm often looking at the interface between very different sorts of, of people, from, from technical people through to just, just any old person who happens to be to be wanting to use a bit of technology and you have to be able to talk the relevant languages to those different communities and, and express the problems that they have in, in ways that each different community has in ways they can understand. And I've had various experience because FutureLearn is, is a company and we're trying to change the way people interact with learning and so on and obviously my, my direct experience is relevant because I also design interactive systems. I can have direct input into some of those things. I've done lots of work in, in mobile learning and adapting pedagogies to new situations and that's obviously critically important for the whole of the new space. So I think there's a range of sort of technical skills but a lot of it is kind of personal relationship building and being more friendly than critical, but, but not being afraid to speak up and say things that might be unpopular. I sit in meetings and end up saying, mm, I agree with you, but, and it's the but bit that, that tend to be the interesting thing. Yeah, the but is what you get paid for. <laughs> exactly. 
And uh, can you tell listeners about how FutureLearn came to be? Yeah, so uh, so FutureLearn is a is an independent company. It, it was founded by the Open University, but it is completely autonomous with its own offices and executive board and, and so on. I was formed a couple of years ago. Essentially, the Open University in, in the UK has been a leader in distance education for a long while, and we're seeing a lot of activity in the MOOC space, particularly from the US, which is sort of reinventing and rediscovering a lot of interesting techniques and getting a lot of traction and felt that it should should have a presence in this and decided that the most effective way was to, was to set up an autonomous entity to, to bring a very different perspective to the field. And that's kind of how it was started. Its chief exec is Simon Nelson, who comes from a radio and TV background. He was a strategist at the BBC, which, and he was responsible for the, the transition of, of lots of radio and TV to having an online presence and launch iPlayer, which is our sort of on-demand uh, media player. And his focus on digital media and sociability of the internet has been an interesting foil to the Open University's more academic perspective on e-learning and so on. And as I think given FutureLearn a unique flavor and feel in the, in the new space. And uh, Open University, the parent of FutureLearn, uh, that's been doing distance education since, I believe, 1971, and I think it's currently the largest distance educator in the world. Can you talk a little bit about what OU offers and how that differs from what MOOCs might deliver to students? Yeah, the, the OU's been around for a very long time. It, it may well be 71. I've, I've, I'd have to check the date with that, but they've certainly been around a long while. And they essentially first started off by offering uh, late-night television programs on, on the BBC where you would get an academic standing up and presenting some complex matter to, to camera, and people would study this, this material at home, supplemented by books and things that they received through the post and uh, tutorials, support, and so on. And the Open University, you say, one of the largest providers, if not the largest provider of higher education remotely across the world. Huge expertise in appropriate pedagogies for that and in assessment and student support and student experience and so on. And it's been, you know, moving with the times. So obviously it does a lot of its stuff across the internet and digitally now but has a slightly different model for things. So for OU courses, people study individual modules and you build up a whole series of modules to, to get a degree. Their, their work is examined and accredited, so a degree from any open university is, is, is as valid as a degree from any other university. People pay for each of these modules. They, they study them in their own time, but the open university has a model of a lot of academic support for students. So there are a lot of associate lecturers, so-called, who are employed to give telephone, internet, face-to-face -face meetings with students and so forth as appropriate. Uh, and they also run summer schools where people can get together and, and meet and discuss issues relating to their, their topic in, in more detail. So although it's distance learning, there's a much more direct contact with academic staff and support staff than you typically get in a, in a MOOC, which might be reaching 10, 20, 30, 40,000 people with three or four academics running it. So it's a, it's a very different model of learning and education. Right, I was at a conference last summer when Sir John Daniel, who was a former president of Open University, was on a panel with Anand Agarwal and Sanjay Sarma, two of the key players at edX. And at that point, expectations were still riding high about the amount of disruption MOOCs would bring to traditional education. But John was sort of a pre-backlash gadfly, kind of questioning the education value of a learning modality where credit was not available. You know, with that as background, how do you see credit-bearing distance learning initiatives like Open University and free learning alternatives like future? 
future learn fitting into the kind of wider learning landscape? So I think I have a very broad definition of learning. So I, I, for me, it seems that most people are engaged in learning of some sort or another uh, all the time. And, and, and most often it's informal learning, whether it's how I'm going to stick up some wallpaper to make my book better, through to under uh, how the glue works on that, um, through to, you know, detailed chemistry or real science or so on. I think we, we can engage with topics at all sorts of, of different levels. So see people uh, having a need for learning at all sorts of levels, at all sorts of different stages in their careers, and uh, I think being able to, to provide support in that space is useful. Um, I think you know universities and higher education institutions and schools all provide uh, expertise and certain sorts of support, but there's, there's obviously a lot of other areas that are currently under-resourced under and underutilized. Um, it's not clear to me that, that MOOCs themselves are the sort of major disruptor. I think things like the, the, the sort of digital connectivity that the internet has given us has, has proven much more of a, a disruptor and opened up options and possibilities for people than anything else. But I think there's a, you know, there's a space for sort of informal learning for which people have an appetite but, but maybe wouldn't be prepared to pay much money for because it, it, it's a passing interest to them. They'd like to know about it, but uh, anything for three to things that uh, do have uh, a value above and beyond the, the value of learning itself, so qualification or whatever. Then people are, are are prepared to pay for these things, and so I think there's you know across that economic spectrum there's space for for free MOOCs, for paid for courses, for credit bearing courses. And so on. Focusing back on future learn, it looks like you're currently offering a couple of dozen courses. I think they're all from UK universities. Is your goal to become the go-to place for UK-based MOOCs, or is Future Learn looking to grow where it becomes a global provider with a library rivaling some of the US-based MOOC companies? It's much more the latter than the former, but I, I would fully accept we look much more like the former than the latter at the moment. We're growing quite rapidly, both in terms of our partnerships. We have partnerships outside the UK, so we've got partnerships with European universities, with Monash in Australia, with, with some other uh, ones as well that are, that are developing. And we've got an ever-expanding portfolio of courses. And I think actually we, we sort of cover much more of the space than, than, than some other people, even though they may have many more courses, that they're often focused in science, technology, engineering, math, social STEM subjects, whereas we cover a wide range of things. There's no doubt we focused initially on partnering with high-quality UK universities because that, that was a way of us providing quite rapidly a very high-quality and distinctive product into the marketplace. And our focus is strongly on really good production values, really clear learning design, specific pedagogies that are adapted for online and massive audiences. So we, you know, we don't really see huge value in long videos. Learners don't like long videos. They don't learn huge amounts from very long videos. You need to find ways of breaking things up and structuring things. So we've done a lot of work on appropriate learning designs that support educators in producing stuff progressions through materials that learners really enjoy. I think the reality is that people will go where they have the most fun, the most value, the best experience. And that's really what Future Learn is trying to offer going forward. You know, having a range of courses is important, but they, they, they need to be enjoyable, they need to be um, appropriate, you need to know what you're going to get. And I think that's where we're building up a, a very good portfolio around these sorts of things. 
And speaking of design, I noticed that most of FutureLearn's courses fall into the six to eight week category that is sort of becoming a standard that moves are gravitating towards. Is that just how things fell with the professors who you chose to work with or are there standards you're trying to create and implement for FutureLearn courses? It's an interesting question. I, I think there's sort of two, two or three answers. The first is it seems to fit very well with the sorts of topics and courses that people are, are offering. One of the sort of goals of FutureLearn, I mean, we have a number of sort of elements of our product vision, one, one of which is to tell stories. So, so we, we do focus on this notion of a course, that there is a rhythm to things, that, that stuff happens on a, on a weekly basis. And we find that maintaining that for sort of six to eight weeks is something that, that learners are quite willing to do. Beyond that, then life tends to get in the, in the way of things. So it sort of has started naturally a, a little bit like that, but we now have quite a lot of analytics and we, we pull a lot of information. We try and get insights rather than just data out of stuff. We pull a lot of information from our systems and so we can provide reasonably good evidence that, that that sort of six to eight weeks, probably closer to six weeks actually, is, is a sensible amount of time to expect people to spend on, on a topic. And obviously, if there's more depth that an educator needs to go into, then, then you might break something up over things. So we've got courses on the FutureLearn platform that you can take them separately, perfectly happily, but they, they do form a coherent part of the series. So you use one and then you do another, and you can then fit it in and around your other activities too. I think at a conference we were at together a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned that you've got a kind of CSI course where students are actually solving a crime as part of the learning experience. This is an example of how kind of the future learning experience of a MOOC might differ and I think that's a very good example. So it's a, it's a course run by the, the University of Strathclyde. It looks at forensic science. But the learning design of that has been structured very much around this storytelling approach. So each week, more information is progressively revealed. And the various different tools and techniques that are used to analyze that information are explained. And so the learners progress in both their understanding of the tools but also their, their understanding of, as time goes on. It's actually based on a, on a real-life case, and, and the revelations are, are happen more or less in the order that they, they happened in that. And so just before the final denouement, there's a big discussion amongst the learners about who they thought did it and why, and, and lots of sort of arguing and focus strongly on social learning and, and trying to encourage our learners to engage with each other in discussions and debates, as well as pedagogic structures within the courses. We support the commentary on going on, and that fitted very well with the progressive revelation of material. I think the other thing to appreciate is, again, for lots of learners, people aren't sort of sitting down here studying a future learn course or, or any other MOOC course, for that matter, to pass their accountancy exams or to become a, a nuclear physicist or whatever it might be. This is an activity that, that's competing with casual TV watching or doing Sudoku on the train while commuting to work or, or whatever. And so it's got to provide mechanisms for being interesting and engaging and, and moving through things in order for it to be successful. FutureLearn isn't the only European MOOC initiative. Uh, I know of a place like Germany's iVersity that is releasing courses in European languages, for instance. At the same time, a number of European schools, including some of FutureLearn's partners, I believe, are also releasing courses on U.S.-based MOOC platforms. Do you envision a unique European presence for MOOCs in the future? And if so, how would that fit into the wider online learning picture? I'm not quite sure what you mean by the unique European presence for MOOCs. But I guess I'm not sure that the geographical boundaries of, of things are quite so relevant in this space. Certainly, as you say, other, other platforms, other providers, and they have different approaches to their courses and, and to materials and things. We're now getting MOOC aggregators pulling these sorts of 
things together. As I say, I think people will, will go where they have the best experiences. And I, I would hope that one of the things that differentiates us from other people are that we focus very strongly on the user experience. We, we focus very much on the social learning. We believe that people get benefits. Even if they don't participate in conversations from reading what other people are talking about, from having small group discussions, from having peer review and, and reading what other people write in assignments and so on. And, and we try and build up the sort of social community of, so on our platform you can follow other comments, you, you can do the sorts of things that you do on, on other social media. I think that gives them a different experience to the one they would get on the Coursera platform, for instance, or on edX. And, you know, there, there's, there's some material, you know, Coursera and edX are obviously very successful and they do very well. There's, there's some material that works very well for that, that, that people get access to. But I think there's certainly a space for the way we do things, and I think it just remains to be seen, which is preferred by learners worldwide. And beyond expanding your catalog and your user base, where do you see Future Learn going in the next two or three years? I think the, the interesting thing is that there are so many areas. You know, there's, there's a thirst for knowledge and education and structure and training out there that choosing the ones that we move into is, is perhaps more the difficulty than, than working out where we go. My personal view is, in some sense, I think it can't that universities discovered MOOCs or rediscovered them, if, if, if you like, that they happen to have these and the interest in, in exploring this. But I'm not sure it's actually their educational uh, objectives that are going to be massively disrupted by it. I, I actually think MOOCs are going to make more of an impact in areas of uh, professional accreditation, professional training, continued professional development, and so on. So I, I would expect to see activity for all MOOCs uh, in, in that journey. And I think there's, there's a lot that can be done to support uh, education at a, at a lower level as well. So it's for younger kids and teenagers and entrepreneurs and all sorts of uh, bits of society that could benefit from the access to high-quality resources, access to a community of interested, engaged learners who are willing to share and guide and mentor and learn from each other. I think all those spaces are right for us to generate some really interesting, exciting experiences for people. Okay, Russell, I want to thank you for being on the Degree Freedom Podcast, and I wish you best of luck with everything going on with FutureLearn. Thank you very much indeed. That was Russell Beal, critical friend of FutureLearn. Having looked at a new international entry into the MOOC pantheon, it's worth thinking for a moment about what we mean when we talk about MOOCs as a global phenomenon. As you just heard, one aspect of the internationalization of MOOCs are organizations like FutureLearn or Germany's Iversity, companies outside the U.S. designed to offer new massive courses that tap professors teaching in locations and or languages that may not have made it into the first few generations of MOOC classes. But wait a minute, aren't many overseas schools, including some FutureLearn partners, already producing courses for Coursera and edX, some of them in Spanish, French, and Chinese? Indeed they are. We can expect more of them to do so in the future, which means concepts such as geographic location are now becoming as obsolete as time when it comes time to defining the boundaries of where and when college-level online learning can take place. But the term global also applies to the student body of a MOOC, with many MOOCs topping 100 countries when it comes time to tote up the places students are logging in from in order to take a free online class. And as the cost of hardware, software, and bandwidth continues to plummet, the ultimate goal of anyone being able to access learning from anywhere is at least visible in the distance. But as I learned at the MOOCs for Development, or MOOCs 4D conference, where I first met today's guest, we are by no means there yet. Large parts of the developing world lack adequate electricity, never mind the computers, routers, and other devices that electricity could use to power online learning programs. 
And even places that have adequate infrastructure are willing to dedicate the few hours of power and internet they have each day to the systems required to facilitate MOOC-based learning. The availability of a couple hundred hugely enrolled courses, mostly in English, can only provide a small subset of what is needed to implement even a rudimentary higher education program in a developing country. But if we step back and realize that no one technology is going to solve all the world's ills, educational or otherwise, then a technology like MOOCs, which might be good enough for many, begin to look like part of a, even if not the, solution. For example, I recently learned of a program called Kepler that runs a school in Rwanda. Yes, the Rwanda that suffered through a genocidal civil war 20 years ago. A school that combines MOOC instruction with in-class support by educators to create a program for Rwandan students who likely have no other option for receiving a post-secondary education. Let's stick with that phrase, no other option, for a moment. But as I've written in the past, students in places like Rwanda or rural Pakistan don't look at MOOCs as a poor substitute for attending a four-year residential program at Princeton. Rather, they see them as a godsend, possibly the only chance they have to learn topics ranging from science and engineering to literature and languages from professors teaching at schools they can never afford to visit, much less attend. Now, all the shortcomings we've talked about with regard to MOOCs, the lack of face-to-face -face interaction with teachers, wide variation level of demand, lack of adequate community or rigorous assignments, are as true in Rwanda as they are here in Boston. But at places like Kepler, there are people on the ground filling in these gaps, providing one-on-one -on -one support and tutoring, using MOOCs in a physical classroom that provides community, and creating and grading the challenging assignments to let students put their learning to work. Which is why I urge people looking at how MOOCs are implemented in the developing world not as an act of charity by wealthy institutions of learning, but as the construction of laboratories where the future of higher education may be coming into existence. I can remember years ago how much development, in the form of public and private sector research, not to mention startup activity, was put into creating products that could help the visually impaired or physically handicapped take advantage of emerging computing technology. And this work led to all kinds of breakthroughs, such as screen readers, voice recognition software, and robotics that today represent multi-billion dollar industries. These are all examples of doing well by doing good. For the same technology that makes screens easier to understand for the visually impaired, turns out to help all of us make sense of our desktops. And just because those who benefit from software that lets you input text into a document using your voice helps those who can't use a keyboard, it also helps those of us who can but prefer not to. In the same vein, we should be looking at programs like Kepler not as development projects that can only benefit the least well-off, but as ground zero for innovation where the network of components that MOOCs can fit into to deliver a full-fledged quality education are being built one piece at a time. And once those pieces and the system they fit into are constructed, success is expanded upon and failures learned from, there's no reason these new, let's call them what they are, schools cannot be exported to the rest of the world, including into those countries where students already have lots of choices of where to study, as fully developed educational alternatives ready to give those traditional choices a run for their money. And with that call to action, it's time to call it a show. But I hope you'll be able to join us for another conversation and possibly another exhortation on the next Degree of Freedom podcast. Okay.